Welcome back to How to Survive the End of the World, a podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. We are back, sort of. Adrian and I continue to have a lot going on. So while we are recording brand new content for the second half of our 2019 season, we wanted to come back from our break with a recording from the archives. In this episode, you will hear a speech I gave in 2018 when I was invited to offer the keynote address at the Indigenous Women and Women of Color Student Summit, an event that is curated and hosted every other year by the Women's Center at the University of Minnesota. The theme of the 2018 summit was this world is ours to build. We hope you enjoy this blast from the not too distant past, focused on how we build a cooperative and holistic future. Stay tuned on our podcast feed for upcoming episodes about the solidarity economy, elections, black love, and more. Thanks for listening. I'm really used to white people wanting to tell me about myself. Um, I'm really used to white people wanting to correct me. And in fact, I'm so used to it that I can see it coming before it happens, right? You know what I mean, right? You can see the the facial expression, (laughs) the body language. You know, and so this woman, she steps out in front of me. She kind of moves right at the last minute because she can see that I'm like, I'm not stopping. And the first thing she says to me, the first words out of her mouth are, I don't think you should ever give a talk like that again. Unless you have a plan for everyone to sit at their tables and talk about it afterwards and have a process around it. Because otherwise it's just too painful. It's just, it just brings up too much for people. I know, I'm like, I love telling the story to this room because y'all understand. <laughs> um, so, and you can imagine what happens. <laughs> the question was, did I make lemonade with the white tears? I definitely scared her. I think I definitely scared her. Because, you know, and it's one of those moments where you're like, I don't know what response you're expecting me to have, but I'm not going to have the response you're hoping that I'm going to have. Right? So, you know, I just very politely shut her down. And, um, and she kind of backed away. You know, but I was like, yeah, Destiny, you should have been backing away the whole time. <laughs> um, and you know what was really hard about this experience for me was that it, it cast a dark cloud over my memory of the whole event, mm-hmm. right? So as I was saying, the event itself was beautiful. I was having a great time. You know, all the other white people were being wonderful. <laughs> and... And to me, this is why you know the terminology of microaggression, I think, is so. I I, I have a hard time using that word um, to describe these kinds of experiences. But I'm sure if I asked each one of you in this room, you'd be able to tell me a story just like this story, right? Um, because microaggression does not adequately um, explain the depth of harm and hurt that happens in these situations and the ways in which they really create a darkness around our experiences. Um, It was one of those moments that was a really painful reminder for me as a woman of color that I actually moved through the world anticipating aggression. 
um, anticipating disrespect, anticipating denial of my obvious gifts. I have to defensively anticipate it um, and prepare for it, not because it might happen, but because it will happen. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it does happen. And curiously, I have noticed that the instances of disrespected experience have not abated as my reputation has grown. I often say there's no confidence like the confidence of a white person discussing a topic they have little experience with or exposure to. You know, in the face of my expertise, right? I'm the keynote speaker. You know, like she would never do that to a white man who was keynoting. No one would ever do that to a white man who's keynoting. I'm the keynote speaker talking about race and my identity. And and this woman still believes that she knows more than I do about the most effective way to present this material. Um, and of all things, to accuse me of creating a circumstance that was too hard for her. Right? right. right? I mean, the depth of like, um, Psychosis, really, yeah. in that in, in that comment, I think is really intense. It's, it would almost be laughable if it wasn't actually true that it happened, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I do think of, you know, I do think that these constructs that we exist in, like white supremacy, like capitalism, like living in within colonization, they do produce a sense of insanity on all sides. And I use that word, you know, in a very literal sense. You know, not as a way to, I'm not, I'm not in any way intending to denigrate people who have mental illness, but I'm saying that there's a, there's a collective mental illness that we are all participating in, um, or a social illness, right? Um, and, and part of how that social illness functions is, you know, that we're all sort of having to participate in this falsehood that we all understand is a falsehood, right? And so then we're left with this question of, well, what's truth? What is our truth? What is the truth that we actually can ground ourselves into as we're navigating? Um, and our truth as women of color is that we are not protected from these harms, the very harms that this woman was telling me were too hard for her to hear about. Um, we're not protected from these harms. Um, and our children are not. Um, I'm a science fiction and fantasy nerd, as you might guess. All the science fiction and fantasy nerds in the house, say yes! Yes! Awesome. So I'm going to be bringing in a lot of quotes from the authors that I love. You're going to hear a few, starting with this one. Um, I just finished reading N.K. Jemison's um, Broken Earth trilogy, which includes, yes! Which includes the fifth season, The Obelisk Gate, and The Stone Sky. And if you haven't been reading N.K. Jemison, I highly recommend her work. She's incredible. She's a black science fiction writer, fantasy writer, both, both writer, genre. Um, but at the beginning of the second book of the trilogy, The Obelisk Gate, she has a dedication in the book. And the dedication is to those who have no choice but to prepare their children for the battlefield. And I remember reading that dedication and just feeling it right here, you know. Um, you know, as women of color, we are brought up in a world that is designed to do more than just harm us. In some cases, the design is literally to kill us. In other cases, the design is to transform us so utterly that we would not be recognizable to our ancestors, much less our aunties and grandmas. And we come to learn later that the sick and brutal history that underlies the treatment we experience daily 
has very little to do with us. But it doesn't change the fact that we are the ones who are carrying it. We're the ones who are asked to carry this burden on behalf of our whole society. Um, and it can be really demoralizing. You know, how, how will this change, we ask. And what is our responsibility to change it? I think about this, um, I have three children, and um, my partner is white. And so our three children are various shades. And um, our middle child is the brownest one, Siobhan. And we had an experience last year where um, she was targeted by her school. Mm. And she was six years old at the time. And the school that she was enrolled in called the police on her. What? Kid you not. Six years old, she was in first grade. And the first time it happened, she, was, she got scared on the playground, and she ran from the playground. Or she was like maybe having a conflict with someone or something, but she ran from the playground. She was scared enough that she felt like she needed to run, and she ran onto the property of the church next door. So I live in rural Minnesota, so when I mean onto the property of the church next door, I mean she like crossed a green field mm -hmm. and was hiding behind a shed. <laughs> and the superintendent of the schools of that school district who happened to be in the building that day decided to call the police because she had left school grounds. So the police show up, get out of their vehicle, and she gets so scared that she goes running back in the other direction. You can imagine how I felt hearing that, right? Oh shit, my daughter ran from the police, right? We thought it was a fluke that we were like, this is clearly never gonna happen again. Three weeks later, it happened again. Oh my God. It happened again. This time she had even less school grounds, right? She had, um, she got scared on the playground again. No one at the school is trying to figure out why she's scared on the playground. That's not what they were trying to figure out, right? She, but she ran from the playground onto the ball field, so she's still on school grounds, but they're like, she might leave school grounds, so we have to call the police. And the police show up and they like sort of station themselves on the other side of the ball field fence, you know, to, uh, what was the word that they used after the fact? Uh, to encourage, to discourage her. So, uh, this is actually even hard for me to talk about still. It was like less than a year ago that this happened. We ended up moving her and her brother to a different school. Um, but you know, it was really interesting because you know we we came and got her, we brought her home, we didn't bring her back to school the next day, and we went into the school to really have it out. Um, and I don't yell at people I'm not related to, but I <laughs> yelled in the face of the principal of the school mm -hmm. because she kept saying, "Well, what else would you have us do? What else would you have us do?" And I was like, "You are a school." I would have you not call the police on a six-year-old. That's what I would have. And you cannot tell me you don't have another way to handle my six-year-old child. But this is the insanity, right? This is the depth of the psychosis. She really believed that she did not have another choice. She really believed that there was nothing wrong with what she did. One of the reasons why she believed this is that she doesn't perceive the police as dangerous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Because they're not dangerous to her. 
So, you know, and then I'm, I'm, we are left, my husband and I are left navigating the effects of the trauma on our, our child. She, I hope this is not too much information, so she had hypocresis for several weeks, which is, she shot herself, essentially. Mm. She would wake up in the middle of the night and, yeah, poop on the floor. And she's six years old, right? She doesn't, these are not issues that a six-year-old would mm -hmm. usually have. She was so terrified. She was so terrified. And for us as parents, it's the most disempowering situation to be in, right? Because especially for me, this is the work that I do. Right? The work that I do is I come in and I educate people about white supremacy. <laughs> and here I am in tears every night because I can't keep my child safe. I'm having to have a conversation with my six-year-old daughter about why she should not run away from the police. So I remember, this was just a couple months ago when I read that dedication in Jemison's book to those who have no choice but to prepare their children for the battlefield. That's us, right? That's us right now. That is, these are the essential conditions that we, that we are existing in, right? That we live in a war zone that no one will call a war zone. <coughs> so, as women of color, I think I've, I don't want to make too many assumptions about what we're all experiencing, but I think I can speak on behalf of many of us when I say that we find ourselves often sort of pinging between two what feel like equally self-defeating options, which is we either keep our heads down or we just burn everything to the ground. And you know what I mean. And I'm actually all for burning it to the ground when necessary. You know, metaphorically speaking. I'm like, I have to be a little bit careful what I say inside the walls. <laughs> but when we say this world is ours to build, if we step into a visionary space, um, we recognize that we actually do need to shift out of this behavior that is mere survival behavior, right? That's like barely survival, right? just keeping our heads down or burning into the ground. That's like, bare, we're barely surviving. We have to, so we have to shift our orientation to the circumstances that have shaped our lives. We have to investigate, name, understand, and reshape. And when I say shape, I'm really referring to Octavia Butler's work. So I'm sure many of you in the room have read The Greatness of Octavia Butler. Yes. If you haven't read her work, you need to read it. <laughs> um, I'm like such, I, I'm like the person who's like, I've read everything she's written, including Survivor, which is no longer an <laughs> I'm, that, I'm that person. Um, and afterwards, if you want, I'll give you the list of like, here's the order in which you should read it. Um, <laughs> and although I know, I'm like, we've got many Octavia scholars in the room, so. Yeah, raise your hand if you're like, I'm down to introduce other people to Octavia's work in the right order. I'm sure you get a different order from each of us, actually. <laughs> Um, so, so I'm really referring to Octavia. So Octavia Butler was um, a black science fiction writer. She was um, one of the uh, first black female science fiction writers to really achieve like mainstream success. Um, 
And her work is really unlike anything that I've read before or since. She has a very particular writing style that um, some people find really off-putting, actually. I found it off-putting when I first started reading it, but I was also like too enthralled to not continue reading, interestingly. Um, her, her style is very skeletal. Um, she's not. She's not like the. You know, if you read Baldwin's fiction, you know that he's got these like oceanic verses that you sort of get lost inside of when you're reading his fiction. Octavia Butler's like the opposite of that. She's like, go figure it out. Um, <laughs> you want to know what it looks like? Go figure it out. Um, <laughs> so she, um, her work is so genius. Um, but she has this particular, these two books, Parable of the Sower, Parable of the Talents, which were actually conceived as a part of what would have been a trilogy. There would, if she had not died when she did, there would have been a third book, Parable of the Trickster, which never was written. Um, but in the Parable series, her protagonist, Laurel Amina, is basically conceiving, maybe receiving, maybe conceiving um, this new spiritual practice, this new religion called First Seed. Um, and in the Earth Seed spiritual practice, there's this real um, one of the core concepts is that God is change, and that to shape change is to shape God, right? And so a lot of the Earth Seed verses are really about what is the act of shaping change, what what are the uh, behaviors and practices that help us to shape change. Um, and I think the practice of shaping is a really critical reframe of the circumstances we find ourselves in. So like, because I have reshaped my relationship to white people, and how much stock I put in their opinions about white supremacy, for instance, um, that really has shifted the way I relate to working with white people around white supremacy, you know? So, you know, in the example I gave earlier, the white woman who really clouded my experience, you know, that, that cloud of my experience is really um, it was less about her than it is about the repetitive nature of those kinds of experiences. But think of how much harmful that experience would have been for me if I really put stock in her opinion. And I just don't know, because I've reshaped my thinking about, oh, if I really understand what white supremacy is, and I really understand the level of investment that white people actually have in the system, regardless of what they want, you know, there's, an, there's, a, there's a deep investment you know, a cellular investment that white people have in white supremacy that they are not conscious of. And that means that the level of, of um, clear thinking that they can have about how to do the work around white identity and white supremacy is not the same as the clear thinking I have, right? It's just not the same. Um, so I know that I, I, I can relate to that experience as I understand that this person actually doesn't have the ability to judge my work, right? Um, she doesn't have the ability to measure it. She does not have the ability to like call it good or not good. She's not the person I would turn to. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting, so as Anitra shared, I have this podcast um, that I co-host with my sister. And we recently had the um, just incredible privilege of interviewing Toshi Reagan. <sighs> the legendary Toshi Reagan, um, who is, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with her work, she's a musician, she's a composer, she's a producer, 
Um, she's the daughter of Bernice Johnson Reagan, uh, Sweet Honey of the Rock. Um, and she's also creating this opera based on Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. And she's been, this project has been in process basically for 20 years. And, and it just recently premiered. Um, first in Durham, North Carolina, and then in New York City, and it's kind of like touring. Like, how can we get Parable here? That's what we need to figure out. We need to get Parable here. And it's like, where's the money? But, so at the top of the interview that we did with Toshi, she gave us this like series of lessons from her mother. Like what are the things that she learned from her mother, Bernice, that really informed the way that she approaches her work. And one of the things that her mom taught her is that no one can measure the value of your work. The value of your work is not measurable. And I've been really like taking this to heart and kind of investigating like, how do I understand why that is true? That no one can measure the value of my work, it's not measurable. Um, and I think a lot about, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, understanding, having investigated and deeply understanding capitalism, right? That um, the many measures that someone would be using <laughs> to understand the value of my work would be rooted in that, right? Rooted in a system that relies on poverty and debt. Um, and you know, and it's useful to look at these systems with a real intersectional lens. I always tell people that white supremacy and capitalism grew up together, you know? Um, and you know, we don't have white supremacy in this country in the way that we have it without capitalism. We don't have, they don't, they don't function very well without each other. Um, they're like an old married couple. <laughs> And I always tell people, like, if only these systems were in service of something good, because they're so effective at what they do. <laughs> so adaptive. Um, but, you know, these are systems that really, they collude together to keep poor people poor. They collude together to keep brown people poor. They collude together to ensure that we're fighting for resources, fighting each other. Um, and, you know, cap capitalism as an economic system is a system that really requires that there's a certain population of people who are in debt. Um, it requires that the vast majority of us don't own the profits of our labor, that the profits of our labor are literally owned by someone else. Now we're getting into a little bit of Marxism. I hope y'all are down for that. <laughs> a little bit of Marxism in the morning. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and, there is a, there is a, there is a place beyond this, right? Um, Ursula K. Le Guin, who's another one of my favorites, who sadly just passed away in January. Early, whatever, sadly for us, it's great for her. Um, I'm always just like, I know, you probably were like ready to go. You're 88 years old. Um, but she famously, a couple of years ago, said, um, we live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So do the divine right of kings. So did the divine right of kings. Think about that. That's really fascinating, right? That folks who really believed, folks really believed that kings were God's honor. And she goes on to say, any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. And as an artist, she goes on to say, resistance and change often begins in art, very often in our art, the art of words. 
And so this is where we're going, right? And we're, we're shifting trajectories now into what does it actually look like to vision a different world? Mm -hmm. What does it require? It does require us to practice a different way of being. We literally have to learn a different way of being. Um, that different way of being has to represent a different set of values, values that are counter to white supremacy and capitalism. Um, and it also it has to, it, it, we are forced to kind of continue to reckon with the way that these systems, um, the way these systems are active on our lives. One of the challenges I think that I see a lot, because I do a lot of work within progressive movement spaces and social justice movement spaces. And one of the things that I see and hear a lot in those spaces is left like, well, you know, it really can't be the case that anyone's actively doing this to us. You know, there's a real fundamental belief that the, that folks who have power and access to resources aren't actively planning our demise. Mm -hmm. Which I find really interesting because if you, you know, if you look at most of the um, most art and media that's like in popular culture, you see the narrative of like the bad guy play out again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And so like in our, in our media, we're continually producing and understanding that there are people who like have ill will towards other people. But in our political work, we seem to not really believe that. <laughs> or like progressive folks seem to not, they don't, they don't want to think that there's someone out there like actually pulling the strings. It's like, what do you, what? <laughs> um, and I think, and I think it's, it's hard because it's, it's hard to have that conversation outside of a very like um, Christian conception of good and evil, right? And I don't, that's not really what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? I'm not really talking about like there's evil people out there doing evil things. I am talking about the ways in which things like capitalism and white supremacy um, produce that you know psychosis, and also produce a set of beliefs um, that defend the behaviors, mm -hmm. right? So one of the things that whiteness does is it acts as a screen for the brutality of what white supremacy is responsible for, and it acts as like a as a defense for dehumanizing behaviors, right? So, so it's easy to think of that in terms of evil, good and evil, but really it's something that I, I think is actually a little bit more complex than that. It's harder to root out because the people who are involved in it really believe it. But then we can talk about, you know, I think, I think often about how Martin Luther King would refer to the evil of poverty. You know, he didn't say the tragedy of poverty, he said the evil of poverty. And so I think that there is something there, you know what I mean, to explore, because it's true. It is, if you're watching the system unfold the way it is and choosing to think of it as a tragedy, instead of as something that's very preventable, there is something, I think, maybe possibly evil there. Uh -huh. uh, you can see I'm still working this through. I haven't quite figured it out. <laughs> sure. But anyway, back to a different way of being. We have to practice liberation. Um, 
And the way I've been thinking about this lately is through this lens of fugitive practice. Um, my friend Alexis Pauline Gums, who's an amazing, amazing poet, artist, she also does science fiction writing, um, is a professor. I think she actually is in residence here for like a two years. What's yeah. the chair? Uh, the I can't remember the chair. Yeah, she has like the, for two years. Yeah, for two years. So you'll probably, if you haven't already been exposed to Alexis, you will be. Um, just check her out. But, and she just released an amazing new book called Emma Archive After the End of the World, which I highly recommend you check out. Um, but I was recently interviewing her, and I asked her to define fugitivity. And she talks a lot about fugitive practice in her work. And she defined it as Harriet Tubmanness, like Tubmanness. Um, and she shared with me this beautiful thought, quote, that Harriet Tubman believed in her freedom more than she believed in the structures that were incompatible with her freedom. <coughs> and this is like enslavement, in enslavement. Harriet Tubman, think about that, that she believed in her freedom more than she believed in like the conditions and constructs that said she wasn't free. And she believed that inside of slavery. So when we say this world is ours to build, I really think that that's a call to take on a fugitive practice in the Tubman sense, um, to become a fugitive from the current world, to be seeking a world that exists primarily through our believing that it does. A world that we understand as being like a world to come, but a world that also does exist already. Because we know it does. And I think of that, you know, for me where this connects in with creativity and imagination is that I think of that as being something that really is a lot like a dreamscape. Um, or like a really good piece of fiction writing. So you know how when you like read a really good piece of fiction, you have that experience of, um, the, the world kind of comes into focus for you, and, but only upon like fully realizing the world do you understand that it exists because you believe it. Mm. That's what makes fiction so powerful, is that you're with it, you know what I mean? You're, you're with it, you're inside it, and you're, you're co-creating it with the writer. Um, you know, I've, been, I've seen a lot of people walking around with the shirts that say, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. I was trying to find the origin of that quote. I wonder, does anyone in this room know where that quote comes from? I could not figure out the origin of it, which actually I think is kind of wonderful. Just like collective conscious, everyone's talking about the same time. I mean, I heard Angela Davis say it, like, in a speech rather than she got it from someone else, or right. she's the one that mentioned it. Let's just pray for her. She deserves it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I think that when we say we are our ancestors' wildest dreams, um, I think we should understand that to be literally true. Because dreams take place just beyond the space of imagination. Dreams contain the things that we can't actually imagine in our conscious life. They connect patterns that we actually cannot connect when we're awake. Our dreams make those connections. So when we think about our ancestors, you know, and, and when we think about this in the context of 
epigenetic science and intergenerational trauma and understanding that we actually are directly connected to our ancestors. And they are directly connected to us. I really believe that a lot of that is happening through our dream, our dreamscapes, right? That, that that space of dreaming is where Harriet Tubman understood that there was a future in which we were free, right? So to me, this really calls in the importance of creative practice. Um, my sister and I, when we're in our, when we're doing our podcast, we're often talking about, you know, this idea that we're kind of in this imagination battle right now, that we're living in conditions that were imagined by someone else, and we're called to imagine differently in order to be able to move beyond these conditions. Um, and I really believe that as as people who are called to do that, we have to like sort of settle into creative practice or find a creative practice, root ourselves in a creative practice in order to be able to do that work, whether we identify as artists or not, right? So I'm a writer, so of course that's where I kind of am rooting myself into. I also sing, if you've noticed. <laughs> um, and I'm looking off into other writers to, to guide me in that way. So again, this quote from Ursula K. Le Guin, um, she says, I think hard times are coming when we will be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now and can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being and even imagine some real grounds for hope. We will need writers who can remember freedom. Poets, visionaries, the realists of a larger reality. I love that. The realists of a larger reality, right? That there's a reality larger than this one. And this feels pretty big. 3 m Auditorium. <laughs> Carlson School of Management. <laughs> and a lot of resources went into like building this space and this podium in this computer situation, you know? But this isn't reality, or at least it's not the only reality. There's a larger reality. So we have to be able to imagine these alternatives, and as we talked about before, we have to believe that the alternatives actually do exist. I personally, you know, this is part of my spiritual practice, I know, I know that alternative ways of being exist, and I know it in a deep and insistent way. And some of that is rooted in my historical understanding of the fact that we have organized ourselves differently in the past, right? So it's inevitable that we will organize ourselves differently in the future. Um, and I do have this profound belief that we can shape that future now, right? That it's like we know the tide of change is carrying us. We can direct the tide, actually, through our practices, through our behaviors, through our choices. One, uh, so one of the things that I do some work around or teaching around is consensus decision making. Anyone here familiar with consensus decision making? Mm -hmm. I'll see a few hands. Um, yeah, it's basically a practice of making decisions democratically with others in a way that honors everyone's voice. Um, and you know, when I'm doing this work, the, the feedback that I get from people consistently is like, I don't understand how this um, 
Like, I don't know, how, how are we supposed to all agree? Um, and it's funny to me because we actually are all agreeing on a regular basis. It's not like, um, we, have, we actually live in a culture that relies on a lot of tacit consent, tacit agreement to the conditions that we are existing in. So we actually know how to agree. That's not the problem. And when I'm doing the, the workshops that I do on consensus, I often bring in sort of a historical lens around it that consensus practice as a way of being typically arises in stateless societies. Meaning places where there is no military or police arm of the state that can enforce a minority of people to go along with a majority opinion or a majority of people to go along with a minority opinion. Right? There's no way to use state violence to enforce a decision. Those are the kinds of spaces in which we tend to utilize consensus. Because we can't make people do things. So when we're thinking about like how would we how would we imagine other ways of being or enter into a different way of being, an alternative way of being, an alternative practice, and consensus is a great example of an alternative way of being. It's important to recognize that one of the things that we have to relearn is a sense of agency over our own lives. Um, and with decision making particularly, it's interesting because like I was saying, it's not that we don't know how to be in agreement. It's actually that we don't know how to be in conflict. We don't know how to be in like principled struggle with each other. That's the skill that we don't have. We know how to be like, okay. <laughs> So truly, you know, when we're thinking about shaping, shaping towards a new reality, we are talking about transforming ourselves, and transforming the way that we tend to, um, the ways that we tend to allow ourselves to be pulled and recovering a sense of agency. As women of color, and all the different kinds of women that are in the room, um, I see. We do. Uh, there's a way that we do fundamentally understand that this world is our world. That is always our world. It's only these ideologies of white supremacy, capitalism, that have like hoaxed us into thinking about it as something that we have to reclaim. We only think we have to reclaim it because someone claimed it, and it wasn't to be claimed. We know that. And as a part of this process of shifting, changing, we do want to be figuring out like what are what are our other practices? What are the practices that represent something different? So just to kind of review, fugitivity and liberation, right? The practice of liberation, the practice of being fugitive from this system. This is an alternative to colonization and enslavement and exploitation. That's what fugitivity and liberation is an alternative to. So the question within fugitivity is, how free can we get? That, that's the question that we need to be asking ourselves, is how free can we get and how free can we let other people be? Every time someone's annoying me, I'm just like, okay. Is this part of their freedom? Truly a spiritual practice. Cooperation is an alternative to exploitation and individualism. 
And the question within cooperation is, how far can we stretch outside of individual and nuclear family unit socialization? How far, how far can we stretch into seeing other people as our family? Creativity, this is the other big, creativity and imagination is an alternative to efficiency, right? And the question within creativity, I think, is how do we internalize the idea that no one can place the value on us? No one can place the value or measure the value of us. And spreading, woman spreading, sharing, <laughs> caring for each other. Um, this I think of as an alternative to production. I think of caring for each other as an alternative to production, to the work of producing within capitalism. And I think the question for like how do we learn that practice of, of caring and spreading um, is how can we remember freedom together? And how can we re rebuild a sense of a commons? which is one of the many things that was stolen from us, right? Like in order for us to live in the society the way we currently live in it, you can't have a sense of the commons because your goal is supposed to, to be to own something for yourself. Mm. <clears throat> so these are, these are the values and practices that actually fill the space of the current ideology. The current ideology which we, we understand to actually be vacuous and to be like doing something to our souls that we've never consented to. It also requires that we really, you know, calling back to this earlier piece around survival, how do we get beyond merely surviving? Part of it is moving beyond the me, mine mentality of merely surviving to the we, ours mentality of principal struggle on behalf of ourselves, on behalf of each other, and on behalf of the planet. I'm going to leave it there. Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you're an iPhone person. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg.